Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, Mickey here, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Jose Arita, lecturer in sports nutrition and metabolism about energy availability. We talk about what it is, and specifically about his paper around within-day energy availability in cyclists and the variation both between athletes and also in the same athlete. We talk about the definition why it's important and also some aspects of energy availability that we think might be true for all might not necessarily have the science to back that up. So Jose and I have a really good discussion in around what we know, what is speculation and sort of where the research is headed to help either confirm or bring up other aspects of energy availability that we may not necessarily be aware of. So This interview, in fact, featured on Fitter Radio a few weeks ago. Jose Arita currently works as a lecturer in sports nutrition and metabolism at the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences at Liverpool John Moores University. His primary interest is in the area of training nutrient interactions in humans. In other words, he investigates how to manipulate ingestion of carbohydrates, fat and protein around training to optimize physical performance and health. We have a link to where you can find Jose and also the paper that he and I discuss in today's podcast over on the show notes. And before we crack on into the interview, just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of Wikipedia out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show. Righto, on to this week's interview with Jose Arita about energy availability. Um, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Are you a runner, Jose? Um, no, per se. I, I used to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, do, you 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 pronounce it right. Don't don't worry. I've been living in different countries and I've been called all sort of different things. So <laughs> we are, we understand you. Don't worry. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's it's pretty good. 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 Yeah. Um, no, look, I I now I don't do any sports co- competitively, but I've I've done sports competitively all my life. Um, I suppose this last thing I did like semi seriously was uh, road cycling. Mm. which I I was competing sort of like national level in like when I was in Australia, you know, like never really was in the uh, national road series, but competing at, you know, with some of those guys. And also uh, when I was in Norway, you know, I did have quite a few races of the national circuit and and stuff. So um, yeah. And earlier, you know, I did many years of Taekwondo, very, very different. There was like black belt in, in Taekwondo. So I was competing at national level back in Argentina, where I'm from. Amazing. Yeah. So I've done a range of, of sports. Uh, yeah. M- most of the times competitively, but now I'm just, I do whatever I can fit in my schedule, really. Totally. And actually, it's, that almost leads into really our um, discussion today. 
because a lot of your research is done in cyclists, actually. And one of the first um, times I saw your name, I remember you had published a case study on a cyclist who was injured and then you brought her back from injury and there was just issues of low energy availability, which of course we're going to be talking about um, as well. So is that where your interest in sort of studying cyclists has come from? Um, or, that, or are they just an easy cohort to get? Yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's a bit of a uh, mix. Uh, you know, um, I really like cycling. One of the reasons why I really got into cycling, it, it was because I could get a power meter so I could measure everything. <laughs> so when I got a power meter, I was like, oh my God, this is great. Uh, you know, you can see all your training load. You can understand, you can derive so many things and relate them to physiology and, you know, having access to a lab and a power meter and so on. So really thinking about um, training and training load in a different way. So really for me, cycling for the number of years that I was uh, dedicated to it, you know, it was more of a numbers game and it was more the fun of like understanding you know, how to improve your five minute power, your 20 minute power and so on. And um, it's so related to physiology and nutrition mm. to me, so related to physiology that I was like, oh, this this is great. So from the, um, let's say, sports nutritionist perspective, or I don't know if, you know, I can call myself a sports nutritionist, but um, from my perspective of someone who works in, in trying to understand how humans adapt to exercise and how nutrition plays a role, then that is really a great model because you 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 can quantify a lot of things you can uh, you see a lot of extremes as well you know like very high energy expenditure very high training load um high intensity in which you know carbohydrate fueling and so on makes a massive difference so um and you know you, you when you experience it firsthand um, and you notice the difference that things make you go like oh yeah that's this this does really make a difference um also when you have the chance to measure a lot of these things in in the lab, for example, and see, you know, what difference that it, but that does it make when you're measuring it properly and so on. So, uh, yeah, I suppose it, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to say what was first, if the, if the chicken or the egg, you know, but, um, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm very much involved in cycling. I typically get, um, cyclists reach out to me to do, you know, a different type of work in, in, for the nutrition. And I used to coach cycling as well. And yeah. But I've got experience like well beyond cycling. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it certainly sounds like it with your sort of history of of athletics and and sport. Jose, um, one of my questions actually, and I might kick off here and then come back to low energy, well, and then we can define low energy availability. But just upfront, like, can we trust what the power meter tells us about energy expenditure? Or what about the watches that some athletes use? Like, how much of that information is maybe gospel if that's the right word or or how much of it do we need to sort of allocate a, a level of error about that because I find it quite confusing yeah you're not alone I must say um <laughs> so I think we need to reflect on this on what it actually means to measure energy expenditure and in energy intake really it comes down to that I think it's very important you know to to consider well first of all what what do we want to measure and why? That's the first question that we should ask ourselves. And then think about how accurate the measurements are. So, you know, if we're working with, with cyclists and we have um, these athletes uh, having, you know, day in and day out, they're training only on bikes, you know, and you have power meter data, which measures direct mechanical 
power. So it's basically measuring how much force you're putting on the pedals and then uh, multiplying that torque by, you know, how many revolutions per minute and so on. And you can get an idea of the, the mechanical power in, 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 uh, in, in joules, you know, in, in uh, joules per second, in, in, in watts. And then you can sort of have an estimate of what is the metabolic, um, a, a power that is generated so how many kilocalories you are using so the relationship is quite is quite linear you know as um the 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 studies that are out there are showing that the the, the relationship between the, the the mechanical power and the metabolic uh, energy expenditure is very very similar so it's, it's a very very good way of having an idea of how much energy you might be expending the thing is that there's of course uh, between individual variability of uh, how much um, energy or what's the relationship between the mechanical power and the actual um, energy expenditure. Now, uh, power meters are best case scenario because it's a very direct measurement of what's, you know, how much force you're putting on the pedal. You know, percentage m more, percentage less, like a few percentage difference might be, you know, between different people but the difference is not that big so it's a pretty good way of, of measuring energy expenditure all the other ways of measure energy expenditure i would say unless it's a more direct thing like down level water which is got you have like total energy expenditure measurements it's a, it's a different sort of animal when it comes to uh, estimating energy expenditure it's a lot uh, more expensive you can do it for periods of like a week and so on but other than that all the other measurements of um, energy expenditure, I would say they're they're worse typically than using a power meter. Yeah. So you know when you're using your um, and I'm 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 not an expert in in uh, energy expenditure assessment, but I know these things because of what I'm what I'm involved in. Of course. But there's a lot of error. That this is something that people tend to forget. There's a lot of error. There's there's a lot of. Uh, you know, a lot of equipment is not reliable. So if you do the same thing twice, doesn't measure the, the, the it gives you two different measurements. And the, there's also the, the issue of accuracy. So how far it is from the actual um, measurement that it, or the actual value. Yeah. And, you know, different estimates can give you or, or different uh, types of um, devices and so on gives you errors of like, I don't know, let's say 20%. Which is a lot, you know, it's, it's very, very, very much a lot. And this is only considering the energy expenditure. You know, if we start thinking about the energy intake as well, we can have like an error of between like 20, 40%, depending on how the, the assessment of energy intake is done. Yeah, totally. So, um, what I'm trying to say uh, with all of this is that. Um, trying to measure some of these things really is a double-edged sword. You know, when we're doing it in the lab and when we're doing it systematically with an athlete, we can have a, a better idea of, you know, what's what's going on. We always know there's a little bit of error, but uh, when you're trying to do this on your own at home, you know, sort of like, don't try this at home kind of thing, like um, the, the error that you're gonna get is probably gonna be quite, quite high. Yeah. So with regards to, say, using your power meter, like it might say you've burnt 1,200 kilojoules, does that mean that I should then eat 1,200 kilojoules back or is some of that energy energy that might be burned from my intramuscular triglycerides or something? So I don't like that. I think I feel like people get confused a little bit by that, Jose. Is that what your experience yeah. is? 
Yeah, of course, uh, of course. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's compli- it's complicated. You know uh, how the the, the biology of uh, body weight regulation and uh, energy balance is very very complex. Um, so. I think sometimes, you know, these devices can help you guiding you in terms of like what your fueling strategies should be, how much energy you should have and from what. That doesn't mean that you have to go to the extent of doing like calorie per per calorie, you know, what your your power meter is is telling you you've you've, um, expanded. Of course, you want to match depending on the situation you are and this this is probably the first question that you should be asking yourself is like what do i want to achieve because different uh, aims will require that you have different strategies on how you structure your nutrition so one thing is for example for whatever reason you want to lose some weight for whatever reason you want to train with low muscle glycogen or for whatever reason you want to have every single session with high carbohydrate availability they are all valid aims, but you know you have to consider which aim you want to achieve at what time of the season. So this this is very very important. So whether you want to match that energy expenditure or not will depend on how you know what what you're aiming at. So I think this is very very important to to consider. Then when it comes to actually say okay I want to do the right thing and fuel correctly all the time uh, and cor- by correctly I mean like match the energy expenditure with the energy intake then this is a, a consideration that you can start having okay yeah this you know this this power meter or whatever device that I, I I'm using is telling me this much then you ask yourself okay how accurate is this and then you say okay this is this is quite accurate should I do it calorie by calorie and, and match it like, okay, you know, if based on my calculations, I have like 3,532 calories that I should be having. It's just a random number I made yeah, up yeah, in yeah. my head now. Yeah. Um, and then you go like, oh, I got to match, you know, by, by one by one. Yeah. I mean, mathematically that can be uh, correct, but, you know, we know that life gets in the middle. So, um, and also we know that our metabolism uh, and our the the way our body uses energy changes based on you know a range of things and there are a lot of things that are difficult to quantify like the need the need is like a non-exercise energy um, expenditure or the need actually stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis and this is all the energy expenditure that you have during the day that is not what you do during exercise that can account for a significant amount of energy expenditure. Of course, there's like, you know, normal values for that, but that, that will change from, from person to person. What am I trying to say here? That it doesn't matter how good you are with your maths. Probably what you're trying to calculate is not going to be as good as what it actually is happening in, in the real life. So my point here, like if you're trying to be like super obsessed about like every single calorie, you're probably, you know, I'm not sure that's that's the, the, the best thing that you can do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. That there's a lot of other things you can't account for that yeah. makes it almost like an imperfect sort of science, I suppose. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes we have, you know, the, the illusion of measurement or the, the, the illusion of accuracy because we're, we're taking a lot of things into consideration, but we have to keep in mind that we as biological systems have a lot of internal um, sort of um, 
pathways of regulation that make us behave in different ways or adapt our metabolism that, so that things as are not, you know, uh, this idea is, is, well, is a calorie a calorie? Yeah, from a sort of thermodynamic standpoint, it is, but we as biological systems do a lot of different things that make it a bit more complex to calculate. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then this does lead into low energy availability as well, I suppose, because when an athlete is in a state of low energy availability, the calories that they might burn from the NEAT and other areas may well um, be reduced if they're not able to sort of meet the energy requirements of the, their particular sport. Is that, would that be right well you know what what happens well first of all we don't really know exactly what is low energy availability i must say that oh, so yeah. in terms of how how we define it what is low energy availability is there a number you know is this like magic number 30 kilocalories per kilo of factory mass per day you know you're under that and then you're like low energy availability watch out avoid at all cost you know it's not as simple as that we know, you know, how we define energy availability is the the energy available for to maintain physiological processes, uh, or the energy from your energy intake, let's say, available from for metabolic uh, processes after after uh, after you su subtract the uh, energy from exercise, expended in exercise. So that sounds very simple. So is this like is this like what input energy? there is for the system to, to maintain. And the idea is that, well, if you don't have enough, then your body is going to be into go into this sort of mode to try to save energy because it's detecting that it's not enough energy available. That's that's the theoretical definition of saying like, all right, neat, you know, very, very clear, um, not enough energy, your body responds to that to try to, 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 to survive in a state, you know, where the energy available might not be enough. So that sounds very straightforward. You know, when we start trying to calculate that and to say, well, when does the body start responding to that and what the responses are, things get a lot more complicated. Um, am I answering your question here? No, no, you are. Because, of course, yeah. you mentioned the 30 um, calories per uh, kilogram of, of uh, lean body mass, which is a, a number I've seen. Is... So that isn't as there's more individual variation probably than than what that number might might tell us. Would that be what would that be correct? Yeah, there's there's a lot of things really. Um, so we have to go back to the the origin of this number, I suppose, to trying to understand what it what it means. Um, so as I was saying before, this 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 concept of energy availability comes from studies in of, of of mammals in nature you know of um basically about the um reprodu reproduction um of of mammals in nature particularly looking at uh, female um uh, mammals and uh, reproductive success uh, and how the the um, uh, the reproductive system gets affected uh, by lack of energy at certain times of the year in animals that are deprived because of like seasonal variation of uh, food availability and so on um and so this then was taken into the lab to work with like rodents to try to understand what was actually happening then this was taken to uh, humans where it's kind of started being uh, calculated you know in very well controlled laboratory studies where they were like giving this 
um, young, um, human array, uh, non-athletic females, food in the form of like a liquid meals, giving them specific amount of energy, very, very well controlled over a period of five days, typically between three to six days. Yeah. Very well controlled energy expenditure. The studies are very neat, very clear, um, excellent physiology, but there are lab studies. Right, so it's, uh, everything is very well controlled over a short period of time. The assessment that they that they've done to see what's the effect of this uh, energy availability is on um, sort of hormonal markers, you know, that are, are very sensitive to the to the amount of energy available. So basically, is this in a way, this is very artificial environment, which is very very important to understand the the physiology, but it has a lot of limitations to how we can translate that to the field. And there's a number, there's a number of, of, of limitations there. Uh, one of them is that the, the duration of these studies is very, very short. Um, we don't know what happens if you do this for a more prolonged period of time. Of, of course, you know, logically, if you the, logically deductively, you would expect it to become worse and worse. Or maybe there's some sort of adaptation that makes that um, it doesn't get worse. So we don't, we don't really know. Then, to what extent these sort of hormonal changes predict physiological differences? We don't. We're not one hundred percent sure. What we know is that the the hormonal changes in these short studies um, make these females a sort of hormonal milieu, like the hormonal um, environment, to look very similar to the, those of amenorrheic athletes. Yeah. So it's been associated to it being a ne negative thing. So is this idea, okay, if you're in like five days of low energy availability, then you see all these hormonal changes. Ma it must be something bad. Um, that, that is, that is the, 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 the connection that is typically being done in thinking, okay, then if you're under this threshold that you might be in this, um, yeah, in this, in this um, situation where your hormonal um, profile is is going you know not in the right direction sort of thing yeah 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 so from there then of course we've got I guess over the last few years there's been much more acknowledgement that low energy availability is not just a female athlete uh issue but potentially but obviously would affect male athletes as well is it um am I correct in thinking that uh there may be some more resilience in male athletes compared to female athletes with regards to the amount of energy, despite the fact we're not sure of that actual number. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's it's, it's important to, when you look at, <clears throat> go back to more like, what you call it, maybe epidemiological data, when you look at the, the, the frequency of stress fractures, for example, in, yeah. in females and, and, and males, uh, sort of uh, athletic or like more exercising population, um, the incidence in, in females is a lot higher. It's about three times as high as it is in males. Um, then it's been, you know, energy availability has been linked to uh, dysregulation of um, markers of bone metabolism. So there seems to be a link there whereby um, energy availability is directly affecting bone health, apparently. I mean, that, that, that's what the evidence seemed to suggest. Um, and as you're saying, you know, then when we when we look at or different studies look at um, changes in markers of bone metabolism in between males and females and energy availability, it appears that males are a little bit more resilient to it. So, um, yeah, it uh, appears that maybe 
f- females are more affected by it than males. So this idea of if, if there is a threshold, which I don't know if there is, because I think it's a lot more complex than that, um, it might be that for males, that threshold might be lower, but we don't really have conclusive evidence saying, well, that is the case. Yeah. Okay. It seems that is, uh, well, it's definitely a lot harder to, to detect in, in males because um, one of the things that is also associated to low energy availability is the lack of a menstrual cycle or alteration of the, 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 the menstrual cycle. So if you are human awake, you're bleeding on a regular basis, you know, every 28 days or so, um, then what it might happen is that you, you, you become oligomenorrheic. So the length of the, of the cycle changes by, by a lot more than is the, the typical variation or it completely disappears. So this is a lot easier to spot in females and in males, of course, because males don't, don't, don't menstruate. Um, so there, there might be some sort of like reporting bias there. It's a lot higher to de- harder to detect in, um, in, in males if there is an, an effect. You know, there's uh, some things that are associated to low energy availability, which is a decrease in, in testosterone, for example, but then the decrease in testosterone is not quite clinical. So it's uh, if you measure someone's t- uh, testosterone after potentially a prolonged period of low energy availability is still going to be within the clinical values, but it's going to be on the sort of in the low end, they call it like subclinical low testosterone. Um, but that then can be through a range of facts. So we don't really know to what extent low energy availability directly affect this. Yeah. And I get, and I suppose if any, any biomarker um, for it to then be sort of matched to other symptoms, that's, these are other signs potentially outside of those biomarkers that, that may suggest low energy availability, like, you know, poor sleep or mood or not able to recover properly and, and signs like that. It's tempting, you know, to relate a low energy availability to a lot of negative things, but I don't. There's not a lot of evidence, to be honest, to to do a, a direct link between these two things. Um, I think we have to be careful, you know, in terms of like how we associate um, one parameter to a range of different uh, outcomes. And it's, it, it might be tempting to think, you know, lower energy availability as this sort of um, evil force, you know, that is out there to deter people from doing their best they can, and it might have a negative effect when it's uh, uh, inflicted in a pronounced way over a long period of time. But I think uh, to what extent we can really link um, low energy availability to, to, to things like poor sleep or whatever, like depression and so on, we don't really have evidence to, to, to make a causative link between these two things. It might be there are associated. It might be that people that uh, sleep badly, they for whatever reason they don't feel the, the in, in the best way, um, and so then the, the the causative effect goes the other way around. So I think um, yeah, we need to be careful how you know we can attribute these sort of negative effects of uh, uh, low energy availability to a lot of different um, factors. Such a good point because that's exactly what I did, and then you called me out on it, which was awesome. Um, because of course, what I see in my head is the the relative energy deficiency in sport. That little uh, circle with all the little yeah. red dots of how these are possibly linked. But I suppose, and and I mean, you're the expert in the field, and you're sort of suggesting that at this point in time, 
there's not robust evidence to point to any particular sort of uh, situation that that might be, in fact, what's going on. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's very important that we generate high quality evidence to to find you know a, a causative link between two different two different things. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So, so speaking of high quality evidence, you published a paper recently on the patterns of energy intake and energy expenditure in cyclists and cyclists and the variability. Can you, Jose, just sort of brief us on what you actually were looking for and what you found? Yeah. So one of the things that I was interested in was in, into looking at you know, to what extent uh, athletes sort of compensate their energy intake when they have high energy expenditure on a sort of day-to-day basis. Um, we took this group of 10 elite cyclists that I uh, of, a, of a team that I was doing uh, work with, a Norwegian team, a very good team. It's not doesn't exist um, anymore uh, now after, after COVID. Um, but what we were interested in, or I was interested in saying like, well, let's, let's see what happens with these patterns of energy availability. I had already observed this exact same thing with individuals, but I just wanted to see, okay, if we sort of systematically collect the data as part of the data collection that we do with the, with the team, then we can have a better idea of, you know, what's going on. And maybe given the numbers of, of athletes that we have, have a, a better idea of, you know, what's char- characterized this, this sort of um, patterns. Um, also trying to look at, you know, this idea that, well, if your energy expenditure is high, then you are more likely to be in low energy availability sort of thing. So th- this is, a, how do you say, like a, an idea that has been out there for, for, for quite a while saying like, well, athletes that have higher volume of training, particularly about like 10, 11 hours a week, are more likely to have, you know, stress fractures, like for, I'm referring to runners here, um, more likely to have like stress fractures and so on. So there was uh, some sort of indirect links linking to, linking between, you know, higher training loads and likelihood of underfueling sort of thing. And I was like, oh, let's see if we can generate some more direct evidence looking at what happens between these two factors. What happens when you, um, when these individuals exercise and they, they are, these are a very good cohort to look at that because the range of uh, exercise energy expenditure that we have in these athletes is massive day to day. You know, we have days that they don't rest where they have like zero uh, kilocalories exercise energy expenditure. Most days they did at least a little exercise, but, you know, the range is between like zero. And some days, you know, they did a six-hour hard training ride and they have like over, I don't know, 4,000 calories or plus um, energy expenditure. So you go like, you know, the, the, the day-to-day variation was was massive. So we collected data uh, in these um, individuals, in these athletes, you know, day after day in a, in a very, very um, detailed way. So we had their power meter data uh, when we do, did this um, method, this is called like remote food photography method. So athletes take a photo of everything of what they eat. So we have like a group of like, a, let's say like a WhatsApp group with three individuals, like the athlete and two researchers who are like following all the, all the meals that the athletes are having, you know, meal by meal or like any snack, anything like it's like uh, recorded. 
and we did it for a period of a week because we know if we do it for much longer, then it becomes very, very dis- disruptive of, of the athlete's life. So I think we collected like quite high quality data and the fact that um, the athletes had power meters, as, as we were discussing at the beginning, is a very, very good way of having it probably as, as good as it gets when it comes to direct measurement of, of energy expenditure uh, from, from exercise. And so what we observed was that it was like a huge variation in terms of like the energy availability that these uh, athletes have day to day. And, you know, the range, I can't remember the exact numbers right now, but they range between like minus 20 to like 70, I think, kilocalories per kilo of fat-free mass per day, uh, which is, you know, a lot different from what the majority of the literature on energy availability uh, reports. So what, one of the differences is that uh, most studies inflict this sort of homogeneous uh, low energy availability for a period of five days, which is very, very useful to see what what, what the effects are of you know, under-fueling, but doesn't, it doesn't seem to be really representative of what might be happening on the field with, with athletes. Um, and we see that, you know, it's very interesting to, to see that how athletes eat very, very similar each day because we were not influencing their dietary behavior. So in, in this case, in this particular cohort, and I would love to, you know, if there are other researchers listening to this now to see this in other cohorts, see more, you know, if this is happening um, with other type of athletes that may be trained less, that are not so concerned about body weight and so on. We see this uh, big, um, yeah, this this big variation. And um, yeah, and, and basically what we see is that at least on a day-to-day basis, they do not compensate. What is very interesting to think when you think about this as well is that um, because there's so little variation day-to-day, day it seems that the rest day from exercise is also a day of refueling inadvertently so it's not that uh, it seems that when they rest on uh, on the on the bike they're actually refueling for you know the following from the following day towards the the uh, sorry from the previous day towards the following day so um, so they basically eat this eat very similar amounts day to day despite the fact that their training load varies quite a bit day to day Correct. Yeah. yeah. So we see, you know, when we running some, you know, stats, we see that the compensation of energy intake is about, um, you know, at least when looking at the day to day basis, and this is a short period of time, you know, what happens over a period of like two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, whatever might be different, but at least during the period of this week, uh, the, the compensation was about like 21 so for every thousand calories that the individuals um, e- uh, increase in the exercise energy expenditure, the intake increases by two, 210 calories, I think it was. Uh, so and I don't have the paper right in front of me, so the numbers might be a little bit off, but it's around around that. Directionally, uh, correct. Yes, yeah. So, you know, um, and of course we don't... <laughs> What is important here, you know, is also to remember that we are aware that there's an error in measurement. And so that's why I don't try to, to say like, um, oh, they, they were in low energy availability this many days. You say there's no reference in the study to low energy availability, first of yeah. all, because we don't know what low yeah. energy availability is. And second, we acknowledge there uh, might be um, inaccuracies in, in some measurements, but we know the patterns are right. Yes. So... 
th this is very very important to to consider. So when you're, you're when you're using these devices to measure energy expenditure and so on, and try to have a look at your energy availability, then if you see big big differences, well, that is that is definitely telling you something. What is important, and this is maybe like some sort of like take home message, is you know. If you're trying to calculate your day-to-day -day energy availability, first of all, it depends what formula you're using to calculate it. But second, you know, if you think that you're in low energy availability because you're in 29 kilocalories per kilo of fat free mass per day, um, and then you know the following day you're in 34 and you think you're safe, that's probably most of it is error of measurement. Yeah. But if you have a measurement of like zero kilocalories per kilo of fat free mass per day, for whatever reason, if your um, measurements are rough or roughly accurate, you're okay, sort of thing. But what's okay is different for different people. But let's say your measurements are accurate and you have a zero for a number of days of low of, of energy availability, then you go like, okay, I think maybe we need to look into what's happening here in terms of your fueling. My point being, if we consider the error of measurement, um, we can have a rough idea of what's going on when the difference uh, is 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 big. Yeah, for sure. But but we cannot be sort of splitting hairs, saying like, "Oh, you're five kilocalories per kilo of fat free mass per day off." Well, you know what should be your target. Um, so this is something that we we need to be careful about. And that's really um, a good point, considering that a lot of people listening to this are really data driven and really do dial sort of focusing on the numbers and and get can get a little bit caught up, I suppose, in in the uh, minute sort of details. And and so you know, taking a step back and thinking about that makes sense. Jose, you did mention in the paper actually that the carbs weren't matched to the requirements. Of um, of what they should have, but what you, they would theoretically need if we think about what the sports nutrition requirements are, and you'll know this as well as I do, probably that across the board when you look at elite athletes, their intake of carbs are typically around that five to six grams per kg body weight per day. Like if I think about the published literature when they look at sort of normal patterns of of intake. Um, do you think that that has, like, is that your observation in general that, that this is typically where athletes fall down? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, it's a reason why we pointed towards that, uh, and it's because we we see uh, again and again, you know, that athletes are basically underfueling uh, carbohydrates um, systematically. Particularly, the, the higher the training load, the, the less they seem to be able to to hit this um, these targets which has it let's say like a knock-on effect on the on the um, uh, energy balance you know of, of these athletes because they are like chronically under fueling um sort of thing um so yeah de definitely and this is uh for most athletes you know it's a very low hanging fruit yes. um that um and you know, when I work with my students teaching them and when I work with athletes looking at what they do um, I tell them this is the first thing you should be looking at. You know, most of the time, of course, each 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 uh, individual is different. Each, each situation is different, but this is one of the first things that you should be looking at: your daily intake of carbohydrates relative to how much training volume you're doing. And most of the people uh, get it wrong. Why this happens, uh, I really don't know. This is more. This happens uh, more with 
individuals with higher training loads. I, I believe that, they, that there's a mismatch, um, that there is some sort of carb phobia, you know, in, in many cases, and in many cases, uh, uh, people get so focused on like eating healthy that they don't realize that the type of carbohydrates that they need to eat are maybe not the most healthy looking like if your training volume is high you need high carbohydrate energy dense uh, foods to be able to match the energy um, expenditure uh, if your if your energy expenditure is high because you have a limitation in the size of your stomach that doesn't allow you to uh, put those carbs um, intake uh, up you know yeah, for sure. being high if, yeah i'm not saying don't eat fiber but i'm saying if all your food is very fiber rich and you're training a lot then you're going to have a physical limitation in the capacity of putting those carbohydrates in uh, in yeah yeah no that makes perfect sense and jose finally um what research are you doing right now that you're really excited about that we can expect from you and your lab in the, in the next yeah. couple of years yeah, well, we have a we have a lot of things going on. Really, uh, it's hard to keep up. But um, one of the main studies that we're looking into now is the uh, effect of low energy availability. And when I say low, it's low in this case um, because we have in in a very well controlled conditions in the lab individuals. You know, for in five days, losing about three kilos of, of body weight. Um, but we're looking at the effect that it has on the skeletal muscle response. Oh, nice. Uh, so we're uh, looking at uh, proteomic responses so that the how thousands of proteins in your skeletal muscle change in terms and the, sort of the quality of the muscle in what direction it goes when on your day-to-day -day you are not having enough energy. So I'm very, very excited about this, this data set. Um, we have, of course, like uh, this is all in, in males. Uh, we hope to be able to do that in, in females down the line, but uh, also because we're trying to understand what the hormonal responses to low energy availability are. So um, we have some very, very interesting data coming from this study, and we have uh, other things uh, along the lines of um, that, that study as well in, in, the, in the pipeline. Well, that is awesome, Jose, and certainly you're one of the names that always pops up whenever I'm looking in, although your paper did not mention low energy availability, but whenever I'm in the space looking at energy expenditure and stuff, I always see your work. So um, it's it's great to see you continue to um, contribute to the space. So it's awesome. Thank you, Miki, for the invitation to, to talk as well. It's a pleasure. as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you and next week on the podcast I have the pleasure of speaking to Diana Rogers uh, that is going to be a fantastic conversation so you won't want to miss that until then though you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or head to my website mickeywillardin.com sign up to Mondays Matter or book a call to talk about your nutrition with me. All right, team, have a great week. See you later.